1: On this show, I have talked at length about the importance of eating enough protein, but sometimes eating protein throughout the day can be a challenge. However, wonderful pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts and is the perfect addition to your day. Each one ounce serving has 6 grams of protein, over 10% of your daily value. It's one of the highest protein nuts out there. But that's not all. Pistachios are also known for their fiber and better-for-you unsaturated fats, which we all need in our diet. Wonderful Pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on your summer adventures. So whether you're dropping off the kids or running between meetings, fuel up with a healthy and tasty snack. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more about how these little green wonders can power up your day. Welcome to Balance Black Girl a podcast dedicated to mental, physical, and emotional health from the Black woman's perspective. Tune in to hear from Black woman health and wellness experts giving the approachable advice you need to help you feel your best. I'm your host, Lestrandra Alfred. Let's dive in. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Balanced Black Girl. My name is Les, and currently we're having conversations all about Dreaming Big and Taking Our Power Back. Today's episode is short, it's sweet, and it is incredibly necessary. I had the honor of sitting down with Brittany Cooper, Susanna M. Morris, and Chanel Craft Tanner of the Crunk Feminist Collective. The three of them just released their newest book, Feminist AF, A Guide to Crushing Girlhood, which helps girls and gender non-binary young people of color find their voice. This interview is a little shorter than usual, but by no means are there fewer gems dropped. Brittany, Susanna, and Chanel are all incredible, brilliant women who share helpful insights on ways we can take our power back from the systems that are designed to make us feel anything but powerful, and how we can support the next generation in their journeys as well. I also want to give you the heads up that as enlightening and empowering as this conversation is, sometimes technology gets the best of us. And this was my first time recording a roundtable episode virtually and not speaking with multiple guests in person. So some of the speakers might sound a little bit far away. We did our best to fix quality in post-production, but there still might be some slight variances. So I just ask that you have compassion when listening. Listening so that you can still take away these liberating gems. And I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts after listening to this conversation. So let's get into it. Brittany, Susanna, Chanel, welcome to Balanced Black Girl. I am really honored to be talking to the three of you today. Um, Right now on the podcast, our running theme is dreaming big and taking your power back. And I can't think of a better topic that fits that theme than the work you do and then talking about crunk feminism. So first for our listeners who may not be as familiar with your work, can you share what crunk feminism is and what that means?
2: Well, when Susanna and I started the Crunk Feminist Collective in 2010, um, we were grad students. Uh, we had been grad students together at Emory, but at that point we had become professors in Alabama and we wanted to relive some of the old magic of the you know, coming of age in the early 2000s in the A um, and the way that we dealt with microaggressions, racist and sexist and homophobic microaggressions in our coursework uh, by going to the club and shaking it off. But we also had a critique of the misogyny in hip hop. And so we thought that we could both reclaim our generational legacy, you know, in terms of growing up on hip hop and also be about our politics, which are unapologetically about smashing the patriarchy. And so we put these two terms together um, and, you know, crunk feminism was born and it became like our generational articulation of what it means to uh, be a feminist in the hip hop generation.
1: What I really love about that is the acknowledgement that multiple things can be true at once.
2: (laughs) Which I think Mm -hmm. sometimes
1: the idea of that, uh, we can get a little bit tripped up on that. And so the idea that um, we can acknowledge something, we can enjoy something, and we can also critique it, all of those things can be true at once. Absolutely. Yeah. So how has crunk feminism, creating this collective, the work that you do, impacting your individual journeys and experiences with feminism?
0: We talk a lot about the importance of a crew, you know, uh, on the original blog, on its, the new iteration, which we have on Substack. And of course, in our uh, recent book, Feminist Day After Guide to Crushing Girlhood, um, we talk about friendship. And for me, friendship has been the cornerstone of my life. You know, my friends are really my soulmates, you know, as uh, a single person who is child free. You know, I have a lot of love in my life, quote unquote, despite the fact that I don't fit into these other kind of normative paradigms. You know what I mean? I think as black women, oftentimes we're told if you're not married or you don't have children or your life doesn't look a certain kind of way, then you have not lived up to the promise of your life. And, you know, that's not to say that partnership or children or family, you know, in sort of traditional ways are bad things, but I think, you know, I think of like what I'll be as as an elder, I want to be a golden girl, you know what I mean? And crunk feminism has kind of given me my, you know, not quite there yet, (laughs) but that crew where I can have folks to lean on, I can bounce ideas off of. Are going to love me unapologetically uh, and all of those things. So crunk feminism has, you know, helped me build my crew in that particular way.
1: That's really beautiful. I particularly loved what you said about having a lot of love in your life because that doesn't have to look any particular mm-hmm. way. Absolutely. Yeah. Beautiful.
3: For me, it's similar, but I would say it's it's about collectivizing everything. And it kind of nurtured that for me, like normalizing collectivity. Um, So even beyond friendships, it's, you know, when I'm working, I'm trying to build a collective of people to kind of shoulder the things that we're trying to do when I'm wearing my children, like everything that we do, um, everything that I try to do in my personal life, I'm looking for community. I'm looking for collectivity um, because we know that the individualism that capitalism really pushes forward kill us um and so the crunk feminist collective showed me thing when we do it that way so even in the writing of this book that that's what it showed me
1: beautiful so i would love to talk a little bit about uh the intersections between wellness and feminism you know on this space we we talk a lot about different wellness topics that are outside of some of the generic kind of wellness content and again that uh very individual perspective of wellness and I love that you both just talked about um relationships and community and the power in collective um so I would love to talk about how interconnected well-being and feminism are um because I don't think that those conversations are necessarily something that happen in the wellness space as often as they should be.
2: I mean, one of the things that both in our individual practices of care and that practitioners have to know is that our Black womanhood actually matters for the challenges that we face, um, that chronic stress is a real issue and that it affects, you know, mind, body, soul, and that that has to be the way that interventions are led. Um, I, you know, what I hope Um, for Black women who are on personal wellness journeys, as we all should be, is recognizing that we need far more gentleness and kindness um, and space for ourselves than we are ever inclined to give ourselves credit for. Because quite frankly, typically we think that being gentle and kind is an excuse to not do our work, to not um, show up. So, you know, As a fat person, this has led to lots of controversy in my public work when I talk about the way that stress, chronic stress, makes it hard to lose weight. And very often the response is, it's just willpower, sis. It's just mind over matter, sis. You just need to, you know, you can't be blaming the man for your failure to get in the gym and push away from the table. And when I sort of say back to people, if you keep people's cortisol levels elevated forever, basically, and they never come down, it screws with metabolism and sleep and mental wellness more generally. And so there's like physiological reasons why living in a stressful environment make things harder for us. And I have thought long and hard in my own work about why it is the case that we struggle so hard with the idea that these external forces make it so hard for us to be well, but I think we struggle because we feel like telling that truth means that we then don't have any power over making ourselves better. Um, And I think that the way this is related to feminism is that Mm -hmm. As we tell ourselves the truth and we make space for our truth. Feminism is a structural analysis. It's a movement. It's not just an attitude. And so we're feminists and we're trying to raise up a generation of young feminists because we're saying that we have to change the structures that make life so damn hard for Black women and girls. We have to change the conditions that induce all of the stress so that we will stop thinking that we are in these positions because we lack something or because we don't work hard enough or because we're irresponsible or because we don't have enough discipline when We are getting hit on all sides with unreasonable demands, which is something that if any sister really gets within herself, she knows the demands are unreasonable. She just doesn't think that they're going to change. And so she figures out how to roll with it. And so we're the folks exploding through the door saying these demands are unreasonable. And if we create the kind of world with the political will to change it, then we can do that. And in the process, that means that you don't have to keep telling yourself this inconvenient fiction about the fact that you're the cause of it in order to survive it. Oh, Brittany, (laughs)
1: that's so good. I was just going to say, you should host this podcast.
2: (laughs) Thank you for that. No, girl, you got it.
3: And I would also add to that, that for me, self-care is really, as a director of a women's center and being in a position where I do have some influence, it is about trying to create structures and and tear down certain things that don't allow Mm -hmm. Black women to rest, that don't allow them to be the kind of mothers that they want to be and have flexible schedules, that don't allow them to, you know, for us to really be critiquing the way that capitalism seeps into how we work, you know, and really trying to normalize in my spheres of influence, and we care more about the people than the product. And so I get to model that, but I also know that I am actively working to change structures so that other women of color can benefit from being, like having care. So it's not just, it is bubble baths and wine for me as well, but it's also about, you know, the personal is political and how can I, where I am, do something differently?
0: The thing that I would add is, you know, I hope that these conversations empower from feminist practitioners, you know, because uh, we, we put a lot of onus, as Brittany was just saying, on the individual person who's receiving the health care or the diagnosis or is trying to meditate or do the mindfulness and all that kind of stuff. But I hope that listeners who are nurses and nurse practitioners and phlebotomists and doctors and psychologists and all those kinds of things or know people who are, um, invite them to have a feminist analysis invite them to think about how feminism can show up in their practice so i'm really blessed i live in atlanta and i have a whole slew of black women healthcare providers my therapist my general practitioner you know my dentist and i don't know that everybody identifies as feminist, but i do know that i've chosen people who are giving me what feels like feminist health care you know what i mean so I'm a fat person. I have a, a you know, a couple of different illnesses that I'm living with. And my doctor is not beating me over the head about weight loss. She's like, let's look at your numbers, right? How are you feeling? What's going on with your job? What's going on with stress? When I was having a really stressful episode a couple of months ago, my therapist was like, okay, well, I see you every other week, sis, but you need to come in every week. Like, let's make that happen. Let's break down some things. Uh, so they see me as a whole person, and not everybody is privileged enough to have that kind of team, and part of it is around access, right, part of it is around um, not having healthcare and so on, and part of, us, part of it is, you might have the healthcare, but you're going to folks who see you as a BMI number, or see you as a stereotype or a stati- statistic, right, so it's really about pedagogy, it's about teaching. You know, so if you're going to nursing school, if you run into nursing school, what kinds of things are you teaching? Why are we using BMI? It do not even really work. Like it's whack, right? So I want us to think of as we're thinking about moving away from individual solutions, when we have some skin in the game and we have some privilege, I able sit at the table, thinking about how we can shift and change the discourse within our own fields, right? So I think that's part of it.
1: Absolutely. I, what I appreciate about what both of you touched on just now was feminism not being an idea, but it being a structural system and also something that gets put into practice, not necessarily just, oh, I think this, I believe this, but what do you do and how do you apply that with what you do um, for the collective?
2: you know, our one of our, you know, founders of Black feminism, you know, contemporary Black feminism, Barbara Smith, snatched the Crunk Feminist Collective about this many years ago when we were first getting started. And we were saying, you know, because our mamas were feminist, you know, and talking and they were, you know, and talking about, the you know, these attitudes that they had around independence and, you know, sort of self-determination. And she said, feminism is a movement to end actual oppression against women. That is what we are talking about. We are not just talking about because other if we're not careful, then and 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 we actually talk about this in this book. If we're not careful, then feminism could very easily be co-opted by a strong black woman narrative. I'm feminist because look at how independent I am and look at how much I fight back against the patriarchy and look at how much I'm not going to be owned by anybody. Right. That can really easily link up with the thing that also kills us and makes us feel unwell, which is this idea that we always have to be strong. And so when we wrote this book for these little girls, for young people, we say to them, sis, like, put that mantle down. That's not a mantle we need to carry into another generation.
3: And another thing that we tell young girls in the book, we have a bossing up uh, chapter, and it's really just like another take on this kind of confidence building kind of thing. And we encourage those girls who do struggle with perfectionism and being the best, the type A's, to actually take risk. You know, what, what you need to do is things that you're not that good at on purpose. So you want to do yoga and you know your balance is off. We encourage you to do that because there are, there, like, that's a part of it too is that, you know, from little if you got hundreds on everything, then you get taught that that is the bar. Like that is what right is. Like we get these, these, these structures. Like if you do, if you go, if you're trying to lose weight, you stand on a scale and there's a number that comes back to you. But if you're like, I don't want that. Like, I want to know other ways if I'm well. We don't even know. Like, you know, it's a struggle for us to know if we're hitting our wellness goals without a scale, if we're hitting our own personal writing goals without somebody grading us. And so a part that, that happens very young. It begins very young. And what we want girls to do to kind of try to undo that, because it can be a lifelong, you know, how do we know? How do I know if I'm well if there's not a number? connected to it? How do I know how successful I'm doing if I don't get this percentage merit increase or whatever it is, but take risk on purpose. You're interested in painting. You like it, but you're, you're, you know, you're not good at it. That's a perfect reason to to go into that. So again, like a part of what we're doing in a book is actually, you know, giving them the context to understand where they are, how we got there, because again, self-care is about understanding power and having analysis of power. And that is what feminism does. But also we we understand too, that you are trying to get through this thing so you can have it in your head. And then it's like, well, well now what do I do? I'll take risks. That's one way that you can kind of try to undo this perfectionism and this desire to get it right all the
1: time. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Yes. I really, really appreciate that perspective for sure. And, and that acknowledgement that Self-care can include some of those more external things that were very much sold and marketed, sure, but that there's also so much more behind it and that the two things can coexist. If you listen to this podcast, you know that I'm a big advocate for having hobbies and learning a new language is an incredible hobby to take up. I've been practicing my French with Babbel and it's been such an effective, engaging way to learn. I took French in high school and college, but I got a little rusty and I wanted to brush up before visiting France earlier this year, and I've been hooked on Babbel ever since because it's helped so much, and you too can make amazing progress with your language learning through Babbel, and that's because Babbel actually works. So instead of paying hundreds of dollars for private classes or playing on apps that are basically glorified games, you can take Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons that are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language as soon as three weeks from now. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and their methods for learning a new language are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations so you're learning things you would actually say, and delivered with conversation-based teaching. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent. It's no wonder why Babbel has sold over 10 million subscriptions, because it's real learning for real conversations. And they're offering a special limited time deal for our listeners to get you started right now. So you can get 55% off your Babbel subscription only for our listeners at babbel.com balanced. Get up to 55% off at babble.com slash balanced, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash balanced. Rules and restrictions may apply. So I would also love to talk uh, a little bit more about the pressure to feel like we're doing things the right way. You know, we talked a little bit just now about Um, breaking down the idea that we need to be strong or that we need to you know, live in in that nature, which I think a lot of us are familiar with. Um, Something that I've definitely struggled with when it comes to how I approach various issues is like, am I doing this right? Am I saying the right thing? Am I supporting in the right way? And breaking down the idea of what is right? What does it mean to do something right? Does right even exist? or, Or how can we Live in this space of of collective care without concern for that. So I would love to hear um, your perspectives on that. If there are people listening who can relate,
2: I mean, a lot of that discourse about rightness and about perfection, quite frankly, I think comes from living in a Judeo Christian country, and often because Black women are raised in the church. I'm a church girl. In another iteration of my life, I am a preacher, and I am I am intimately, you know, familiar with that desire for perfection and that. But it's also the thing too, where we put so much pressure on ourselves to overcome systems by literally being perfect, right? Whether we're imposing respectability politics on ourselves and saying like, this thing happened because you weren't, you know, articulate enough, you aren't educated enough, you aren't, you know, you didn't, you know, you're a st- statistic in some way. Your life is not heteronormative enough, like you do know, you ain't got the dude or the kids and the, you know, the, the fancy house and the car, all of that stuff can produce this anxiety that the bad things that happen to us is because we don't, you know, achieve some ideal. And so if you then take that shot through with the jesus narrative that you hear in church all the time that is always preached to us in a way that makes us feel inadequate right it's like you know you you have to pray and like name all your sins before you think the lord will hear you well i mean how is, is it really a good like mental health practice to every day list out all your shortcomings all the time as a pretext for divine connection that doesn't seem healthy And yet it's what we're taught to do. And it also then means that we are conditioned, even if we have sort of stepped out of those theological spaces, to see ourselves as lists of things that need to be corrected. And then we take that same judgment into the kind of activist work that we do, always feeling like it's inadequate. And this is where the need for structural analysis comes in, because part of what I'm saying is like, We have a deep sense that the problems are so much bigger than our individual capacity to solve. And the thing that you then need when you recognize that is not to then beat yourself up and say, why am I not doing more? Right. But instead, you need to say, where is the movement of collective folks working together to change the set of conditions? As an example, you know, we're having a societal conversation finally long overdue about climate change. And, you know, this is Susanna's stuff. This is kind of stuff she works on. And forever we have been told like you just need to not use those water bottles you just need to not use single use plastics, you just need to. You know, not have your car with gas and it's like or we could regulate corporations right it's like you could stop drinking out of plastic straws and if we all did that it would not save the planet, if you regulated the few corporations that contribute to most of the waste things get better for us immediately and so that's us take literally trying to suck an ocean through a straw and we do that in so many other parts of our lives right Um, and it's why you know in our new book and why we write together why we have a collaborative practice all of us in the work that we do so that we're never feeling like It's up to any one of us individually to solve a problem, and it's why we always tout the gospel of crew, you will hear us say it in every talk we give. You got to have a crew and it's not just so that you have somebody to call when you're down or when you're up, but it's rather so that you are reminded daily in your practice that somebody else is also out here fighting with you to make the world better.
0: Absolutely. And it's important that young people get this lesson early on because that individual kind of neoliberal burden that's placed on people, that starts early. So we're trying to get folks when they're 13, 14, 15, thinking about collectivity, thinking about like, you know what, when you go out in the world and you try to make a difference, you may mess up. Here are the ways that you can make that better. Here's how you can apologize. Here's how you can get in and do activism. And there are multiple ways to get into community and get into formation in that way, right? Rather than, again, starting that strong Black woman narrative or starting that neoliberal narrative of like, individually, this is all you can do. No, we're all about collectivity for the youth.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That qualitative versus quantitative um, is, is huge, huge, huge. So this week, for those of you listening, the episode's going to come out a little bit later, but this week, uh, these ladies just came out with their newest book, Feminist AF, which we've touched on a little bit, but I'm excited to talk about more, which is going to be linked in the show notes so that you can check it out, order it for the young girls in your life there. Um, But I would love to talk a little bit more about some of the unique challenges that we're seeing young people facing today that may be different for those of us who are millennials or Gen X um, and the ways that we can support those young girls in our lives if we're, you know, the moms or the aunties or the big sister figures um, as they navigate their own journeys?
0: Well, we have an ethos, you know, this is language that Chanel has really brought into the collective and we, we used it as like a, you know, a core principle in the book. It's about meeting girls where they are right meeting young people where they are and so you know the book keeps it real we're talking about all kinds of things from you know what we just discussed about grades or trying new hobbies to how do you navigate dating, how do you navigate friendships. You know, what if you're the raggedy one in the friendship and you have to check yourself because maybe you've been a mean girl or you've been a bully. Or what if you, you know, you like somebody who's in the ninth grade and you like somebody who's in the 10th grade, why not date them both and have some polyamory? But have ethical non-monogamy, right? Because that's really where the kids are. We might clutch our pearls As millennials and gen Xers and be like oh my gosh you're 15 you can't be doing that, but they're having those kinds of conversations. Around gender and sexuality and so on, so that's a guiding principle that's one of the reasons why. We wrote the book together is because we know that young people have these questions and we're showing up as big sisters aunties parts of their village that you know. We may internally clutch our pearls right but we're here we want them to come to us and ask <laughs> the questions and share the thoughts, you know, so,
3: and in so many ways the biggest problems at this generation faces are the ones that we faced especially when you get into you know this particular age group middle school high school you're still worried about your friends you're still worried about looking fly you still feel like you know you're going through an awkward stage and you look you feel like you look ugly and nobody's going to choose you and you know you're still having your first strong feelings about someone else or questioning you know your sexuality and wanting to explore that and also wanting to change the world that's not different than when, you know, we were 14 and and 15. And so when we really sat down and think about what do we want to say, it's what we've been saying. It's the book that we needed and the car ride conversations that we already had with our own, you know, family members that we've been playing, you know, big sister, big cousin to. Um, So things really haven't change that much, even though this is a generation that has never known a time. Um, you know, we're born post 9-11, you know, are experiencing high school in the middle of a pandemic. Like all of that is true and complicates things, but at the core, these things, these issues are not new. How they how they are engaging with their girlhood is is not different than what than than what we were going through.
1: Mm -hmm. I love that you said you you wrote the book you you wanted and, and needed. I love that. Amazing. So before we finish our conversation today, I would love to hear from each of you what taking care of yourself and finding your balance or finding your center looks like and feels like for you today. It's probably like a tough week for that question because you have a lot going on with the release of the book and um, are very, uh, very busy. But I I would love to hear from each of you. um, what pouring into yourself is looking like and feeling like for you.
2: You know, so to our earlier conversation around this, I mean, I do all of the things, whether it's yoga, pedicures, massages. I mean, some of those things have been limited by the pandemic, but they're all in my repertoire. you know, I spent a lot of time doing water aerobics this summer because I find it to be super relaxing. So finding space for me for like intentional movement is has been really useful. Um, but I also just really try to invest in having a crew so that I can call and say, hey, it's not a it's a down day, not an up day. Um, and folks call me and say that and I invest as much time and energy uh, in my friendships as i do in other relationships in my life because i think that they're soul sustaining um and so that's one of the you know the sort of broad outlines the other thing i've been doing because i read about it is Uh, using some of these apps that curate playlists, you know, related to like anxiety or depression so that it, you know, so that it can actually induce you a different kind of mind state or feeling in your body. Because I struggle with anxiety and, and that plus a high stress life means like that you have to have active tools to like regulate your heart rate and calm yourself down. Um, And so I try to do those things and, and I used to think that they were super fluffy and that I am not fluffy, but here I go with my playlist, you know, if it's in the (laughs) middle of the night, I'm like, play, you know, and calm this heart rate down so that I can, you know, get back to sleep and and calm all the anxious running thoughts. And so I highly recommend it. Thank you for sharing.
3: For me, it's been pouring into relationships that I've had for a really long time and making sure that I'm spending that time with people. I had a wonderful time in Brooklyn Hanging out with cousins that I hadn't seen in years, mostly because of the pandemic and walking, um, you know, taking an opportunity to walk from space to space, stop to stop, listen to the city. Um, I'm excited to do that in all of our tour stops is connect deeply with people that mean so much to me. Um, and then also move about, you know, to Brittany's point, finding spaces to move. I love to walk. And so just going back to to that. So that's what I'm doing.
1: Mm, beautiful this is I feel like every other episode of the podcast I'm talking about walking it's a very pro walking uh (laughs) platform and audience so love that
0: (laughs) yeah I'll add to that too I love walking I haven't had a chance to do so much of that this week you know resting as much as I can you know as someone who is a caregiver for an elderly parent uh, and an elderly pet um oftentimes my you know taking care of your people your folks Uh, And just being in the room by myself and it being quiet has been amazing. Um, I've made time this week to put therapy on my calendar, even though we're going to be in like four different cities this week, Um, just making sure that I'm working on my mental health. And like Brittany mentioned, you know, I'm all about an app that is, you know, catering towards mindfulness. So I've had the Calm app for years. I love Shine, you know, I love listening to a calming podcast, you know, all of that, utilizing all those tools. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing this week.
1: Beautiful. Beautiful practices. Thank all of you for sharing. And thank you so much for joining me in today's episode. For all of you listening, make sure you head to the show notes, check out their new book, Feminist AF, A Guide to Crushing Girlhood, um, an amazing read for the young girls in your life. And I really appreciate the work you all do and you all being here today. Thank you
0: for having us. Yes.
1: told you there would be no shortage of gems dropped (laughs) huge thanks to our guests britney Susanna, and chanel who took the time to come on the show when they had a jam-packed book release week schedule i appreciated this conversation so so much head to the show notes for more information about the crunk feminist collective and make sure you pick up a copy of feminist af for the young person in your life Thank you to today's sponsors for making today's episode possible. And of course, thank you to you for listening, for your continued support and for being here. Next week on the show, we have our first returning guest interview with the amazing Chrissy King, who was our first guest ever on the podcast over three years ago. She's had some big life changes, and a lot of dreams come true since the last time she was on the pod. So she's telling us all about it, and we talk about taking our power back through living our dreams and through body liberation. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss it.